Blog Talk Radio. The B I B I L E that's the book for me. The B I B I L E that's the book for me. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. We're in a study of the book of Ephesians and find ourselves this morning in chapter 5 
And I want to draw your attention to verses 18 and 19. So open your Bible, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read them, and, and then we're going to uh, talk about these verses uh, for probably a couple of weeks, because this is such an important portion of Scripture. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, obviously, this is a context of worship. Whatever the filling of the Spirit means, whatever it produces, based upon the next verse, it begins with worship. The impact of a Spirit-filled life will show up starting in verse 22 in marriage. In chapter 6, at the beginning of that chapter in family life, and later in chapter 6, even in your public and business life, with the world around you. So being filled with the Spirit is a very foundational reality, as we all know. But what sets this verse apart is the very unusual comparison between being filled with the Spirit and being drunk. That 18th verse says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it immediately starts talking about Spirit-filled people worshiping the Lord with particular emphasis in music, singing and making melody in their hearts. Spirit-filled people sing. I know there is a, a waning of singing in churches. This is being decried by many people today. There are churches that have very little, if any, singing. They sit in the dark and watch somebody else sing on the platform or the stage. But a Spirit-filled believer gathers with other believers and they express their worship in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in their heart to the Lord. But I want us to focus on the contrast between that and being drunk. Be not drunk with wine. How do these two things connect? Why is it necessary to compare this with drunkenness? On the surface, there doesn't seem to be any comparison at all, unless you say, well, there's a reasonable comparison. Being drunk means you've yielded up control of your faculties to something inside of you, namely alcohol, whereas being filled with the Spirit means you've yielded up control to someone inside of you, namely the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness produces dissipation, debauchery, degradation, and sin, whereas the Holy Spirit produces righteousness in worship and in every relationship in life. Why is this comparison made? Well, on its face, it should be obvious. 
And it is this, because this is a religious comparison, not simply a reasonable one. It's not just an analogy. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. There's much, much more than that. That is reasonable to say, of course. But this is really a religious contrast. And to understand this, we have to understand something about the religious history behind it. Now, we are all very much aware of what the Bible says about drunkards, drunkenness. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, it says, drunkards do not inherit the kingdom of God. They're listed with uh, homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, and all kinds of other sinners as those people who do not inherit the kingdom of God. So we understand the, the sin of drunkenness. But why the comparison to spirit-filled behavior? And the answer comes because drunkenness was essential to the ancient forms of religious expression. That's what I want to try to communicate to you this morning. It was standard conduct in pagan religions, even far back into the Old Testament among the idol worshipers that surrounded the nation Israel, and particularly in the New Testament, in the Greco-Roman world, it was standard conduct in pagan religious expressions to participate in drunkenness, along with gluttony, along with sexual deviation and orgies, and they were accommodated by plenty of alcohol to drink and temple prostitutes as well. Drunkenness was not just social, it was religious. It was not really, in that sense, even optional. You were expected to be a part of the society's worship. There was no separation of the religious from the secular at all. Essential in the ancient world was the religion of their gods. And that incorporated into its expression drunkenness. And all that followed with drunkenness, every imaginable and unimaginable kind of sin. Now to help you understand that background a little bit, let me, let me give you a little kind of dust up on Greek mythology, okay? Greek mythology said that the great god, the great god Zeus, and this is the, the um, mythology that dominated the Mediterranean world in New Testament times, the great god Zeus gave birth to a son. This is uh, obviously a satanic counterfeit of the true god who brought his son into the world. But god Zeus gave birth to a son. It happened in a very unusual way. This is what the mythology said. The child God started out being conceived in the womb of his mother, Semele, some goddess named Semele, was pregnant. She insisted on seeing Zeus. And so she asked for an audience with Zeus, and when she entered into the presence of Zeus, the all-glorious Zeus, his glory incinerated her, and she was instantly reduced to ashes. However, Zeus reached down and rescued the child in her womb, and then Zeus 
sewed that child into his thigh until the time for the child to be born. He was born, and he was a threat to all other would-be rulers. And so after he was born, he was kidnapped by the envious Titans, the Titans who were known as the sons of the earth. And they kidnapped this child who had been born from the thigh of Zeus, and they basically tore the child limb from limb. And the Titans cooked the child's parts and ate them. However, in the process, Zeus reached down and once again rescued the heart of this child. Zeus then swallowed the heart of this child and it became reborn through him a second time, a kind of resurrection. And his name was Dionysius. Zeus then paid back the Titans by blasting them with lightning and they were reduced also to ashes, and from those ashes, according to Greek mythology, came the human race. So in case you wondered, <laughs> that's the Greek mythological spin. Dionysius then spawned a religion marked by two things, ecstasia and enthusiasmos, from ecstasy and enthusiasm in English. And it was a religion that saturated the Greek and Roman world. It was the dominant religion in the ancient Greek and Roman world. And it was, it was base. It was ugly. The worshipers ate the raw flesh of the mystic bull, which was sacrificed. They committed atrocities with human genital parts, and they actually worshipped those genital parts. Scandalous brotherhoods were developed in the name of Dionysius. The worship was done in temples that were built all over the Greek and Roman world. It was sordid, sexual perversion, and it was accommodated by drunkenness and sorcery. In the Greek New Testament, there is a word that's translated sorcery. It's the word pharmakeia. Sound familiar? Pharmacy. It literally meant drugs, but drugs were concoctions that sorcerers used. And so pharmakeia means a drug or a user of drugs. And then there's pharmakous, which means the one who deals in drugs. Both of those words appear several times in the book of Revelation as the world comes to its end and people are caught up in sorcery and drugs and will not repent. So the ancient Greco-Roman worship of Dionysius, which was the dominant cult, was basically dependent on drunkenness. How else could you give yourself over to debauchery consistently all the time, over and over and over and over again, without a screaming conscience? Satan knew that to cause people to behave in that way, they needed to have their thinking altered. The cult of Dionysius was most recognized for 
wild dancing, the kind you would see probably in any modern dance club, madness, a kind of abandonment, music, sexual perversion, drunkenness, and sorcery or drugs. The, the ancient Roman writers write a lot about this. Euripides is one who wrote of some of the horrifying rituals that I won't salt your mind with. Dionysius eventually became known as the god of wine, and his Roman name, that's the Greek name, the Roman name was Bacchus. Have you ever heard of a Bacchanalian feast? That's a drunken orgy. Bacchus is the wine god. I remember years ago being in Baalbek in the Middle East and visiting the ruins of the temple of Bacchus in Baalbek, where Bacchus was worshipped. And among the many things you saw there were carvings of grapes and things like that, signaling, signaling the use of wine. But there were great pits in the middle of the floor which were used, the guides told us, for the people to vomit and regurgitate as they feasted and expressed themselves in drunken debauchery. There were also etched into all of those remaining stones, nymphs and satyrs. It was the height of satanic religion unmasked. And really not a lot unlike Baal worship or the worship of any other false gods in the Old Testament age as well. So you see, in ancient Greek culture, if you were in the culture and you were socially active and you participated in the culture, you participated in the worship of the culture because that was essentially the heart and soul of the culture and you needed to comply with the worship or the gods would be angry with you and if they were angry with you, they would be angry with the city and the city would pay the consequences of an angry god. So they needed you to conform, and so the society was debauched. So drinking wine, using drugs, was not a way simply to escape your problems. It was not about producing a buzz so that you could have a little joy in an otherwise boring life. It had to do with elevating you to kinds of behaviors that were essentially done to please the sordid, corrupt, demonic deities. In fact, this was so prevailing that when people came to Christ in the ancient Greek and Roman world, they had a hard time divesting themselves from it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll give you an illustration of it. In 1 Corinthians 10... Paul is writing to the Corinthians about their behavior at the Lord's table, the communion. And we can pick it up down in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 10. And Paul is about to launch into a long section on the Lord's Supper, the rest of chapter 10 and into chapter 11. But he begins by saying this in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved... He's talking to believers. Flee from idolatry. Now you would say to yourself, wait a minute. If they are believers, they have already fled from idolatry. 
Well, they may have fled from idolatry in a saving sense and put their trust in Christ alone, but they had not yet been able to completely divest themselves of the behaviors of that idolatry. They therefore needed to flee in the sanctified sense. Flee from idolatry. Can you say that to a believer? Sure. Any time that a believer, one who belongs to Christ, is entangled with the corruption of the world, you have to remind them to flee fully in a sanctified sense what they once fled fully in a salvation sense. So he goes on to say this, and this will show you how this had infected the communion and the church. Verse 15, Paul says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Now I want you to think this through and be wise. And remember now, last week we talked about walk in wisdom, right? The the verse immediately preceding, don't get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. The prior command was to be wise. Walk wisely. So here it is again. Flee idolatry, which is an expression of wisdom. And then he says in verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And the answer is, of course. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Yes. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I'm not saying an idol is anything. Why did he bring idols up? Why does he start by saying flee from idolatry? Why does he then talk about the cup of blessing the blood of Christ, the bread, the body of Christ, and then go back to idols and sacrifices to idols because the people had dragged their behaviors from their idolatrous pagan perversions into the table of the Lord. And that becomes very obvious. Verse 20, the things which the pagans sacrificed They sacrifice to demons and not to God. No part of that can be imported. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. And then verse 21 explicitly says it. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, which was a cup of wine symbolizing His blood, and at the same time, the cup of demons, which was a cup by which you became drunk. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is such an outrage. You can't. Verse 22 adds, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than He, are we? Are you so foolish as to think you can do that and provoke the Lord to jealousy and get away with it because you're stronger than He is? Clearly what was happening was the forms of their old religion were hard to let go of. Why? They were profoundly habit-forming, as is all drunkenness, as is all immorality. 
If you had spent years of your life engaged with temple prostitutes in a drunken stupor and concoctions by sorcerers and you came to Christ, could you walk away from that? Would not the temptation be fierce? And apparently in Corinth, the people were doing that and then coming to the Lord's table. And he says you can't do both of those things. Over in chapter 11, verse 20, still talking about the Lord's table. He says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. What is going on? You're coming together, but it's not the Lord's Supper. It doesn't qualify. Why? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. You can't do this. So Dionysiac orgies and drunkenness and sorceries and drug use are contrasted with the sweet, pure, serene, beautiful fellowship, power, and joy that comes from the filling of the Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit to commune with God. Not drunk. So he's really contrasting two kinds of worship. Satanic worship with true Christian worship. And they were blending the two. They were blending the two. So he says in verse 18, back to Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine. Stop getting drunk. Why in the world are you getting drunk? You say, well, it's probably hard for them because they had imbibed so long in that kind of stuff that it was a tough habit to break. You got that right. We know that, don't we? We know how difficult alcoholism is to conquer. But he just says, stop. Stop. The verb is methusko, to be drunk, to become drunk. It's used three times in the New Testament. Because drunkenness, he says, leads to dissipation. It doesn't lead to worship. It doesn't lead to an elevated consciousness of the deities. It leads to asotia in Greek, which means debauchery, abandonment to degradation. We all know that. You know, when you're going to go take an interview somewhere for a job that you want deeply and you've prepared for it and you know you're talking to somebody who's very astute and elevated above you, you don't get drunk before the interview. That is not going the right direction. You get undrunk if you have to. Because you want to be in full use of your faculties. 
Don't get drunk with wine. We all understand the, the Bible forbids drunkenness. Again, in lists of sins and transgressions about the people who are not in the kingdom of God, those lists, whether it's Romans 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 5, those lists that include drunkards say they don't enter the kingdom. They're included with adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, etc., 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 etc. So just as a general principle, you've got to stop drinking. And think about it, folks. This is not something that some people did. This is kind of what life was like for everyone. I mean, this was basically demanded of people. If you, unless you wanted to make the deities mad and have the deities come after you and incinerate you with lightning bolts, you got into the action. So all of that kind of religion was dependent on intoxication. And that's got to stop. Wine is oinos. In the Greek, it's yayin in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, it's a mixed wine as it is in the Greek. I'll show you that in a few minutes. The 1901 Jewish Encyclopedia distinguishes yayin wine from shakar, which was the Hebrew word for a strong drink, unmixed. And uh, the difference was unmixed was very strong in alcohol content. The wine was weak in alcohol content because of its mixture. Now, people ask a simple question, shouldn't Christians be able to drink wine because people in the Bible drank wine? And you don't want to have a simplistic answer to that, so let me help you with the answer so that you'll know exactly what wisdom would do. It was part of life. But because it was part of life, it was very important to warn people. Because they were dealing with something that could take over their senses. And they were dealing with something that was ubiquitous in the pagan world and led to all kinds of horrific behaviors. So there's no place for drunkenness. No place for losing any control. We don't do that as believers. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, we read, For the time already past is sufficient. In other words, your past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the pagans. The, the pagan part of your life is now over. That's all past. When you pursued a course of, and listen to these words, sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There you have it. The idolatries are the mix in which all of these other behaviors take place. The pagans worship abominable idols, and to do so, they pursue a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, and drinking parties. And it leads, as verse 4 says, to excesses of dissipation. But Peter says, 
They are then surprised that you don't run with them in the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. You know, you paid a price. If you didn't join the religious party, you were, you were not just uh, outside the party. You were outside the culture. You were outside the society. And then you were maligned. And you were criticized. You were mistreated. And you were rejected. And you made people angry. It would be like going into the CDC without a mask. You were vilified. And so there was pressure to stay with the family and the extended relatives and the society. Pressure was really great. In Titus 2.3, it talks about taking care of older women. And it says you can take care of older women. The church can take care of older women who are not to be lingering long beside their wine. Wine was a staple drink. The water was bad. They they drank wine. But they didn't linger long there because they knew the implications of that. And the church is even told, you don't have a responsibility to care for a, a widow who is a drunken widow. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived by them is not wise. You want to walk wisely? Be wise about consuming alcohol. Now, I want you to go to Proverbs chapter 23 for a moment. And I'll say a lot more about this next week, so if I leave some stones unturned, We'll cover that next time. But in Proverbs 23, verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise. Here we are again with this connection between wisdom and uh, not being drunk. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine. This went on in the Old Testament time as well. Or gluttonous eaters of meat, because that's how they expressed their worship, with gluttony and drunkenness. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. You'll become a stumbling drunk, and it'll lead to poverty. We see plenty of that today, don't we? But notice down in verse 26. Give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. For a harlot, a prostitute, is a deep pit, and an adulterous woman is a narrow well. She lurks like a robber and increases the faithless among men. Why why are we now talking about prostitutes and harlots and adulterous women? Because you go so easily from drunkenness to debauchery. 
And it immediately comes into verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? You, you are more likely to find yourself in the arms of a harlot and a prostitute, an adulterous woman who will steal you blind if you're drunk than if you're sober-minded. Who has woe? Verse 29 asks. Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without a cause? What happened to you? How'd you get all those bruises all over your head? Who has redness of eyes? I'll tell you who. Those who linger long over wine. And those who go to taste mixed wine. Prostitution to drunkenness. Connected. You abandon wisdom. You fall into drunkenness. You end up in sexual debauchery. So verse 31 warns you, don't even look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. You see the guys on television with the big wine glass swirling it around. Birds are chirping and beautiful scenery and mountains and snow. And the guy is the macho man that every woman dreamed of. And he's swirling this and the sunlight is bouncing off of it. That's exactly what the Bible says not to do. Yeah, verse 32 says, at the last, in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And you, you wind up on Wilshire Boulevard in a tent. In your eyes, verse 33, will see strange things. And your mind will utter perverse things. And you'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. It'll drown you. It will drown you. Or like one who lies down at the top of the mast. If you're a sailor and there's a storm and your boat is in the storm, the last place you want to go is to the top of the mast. Because that is the most precarious place on the boat. Get in the bottom where there's the least disturbance. If you're trying to sleep at the top of the mast, you're going to get catapulted into the sea. It's destructive. Verse 35, they struck me, but I didn't become ill. This is the alcoholic talking. They beat me, but I, I didn't know it. I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I'll seek another drink. This is the insanity of it all. So the author passes from harlotry and prostitution and immorality to drunkenness and shows the folly of it. It's a terrible trap. Isaiah 5.11 talks about those who rise up early and start drinking and drink all the way till night. The horrors of that. The Bible has a lot to say about it. I won't take any more time with that, but I do want to balance that off for a moment and say this. While the Bible forbids drunkenness, the Bible also speaks about wine in positive terms. In fact, in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 23, there are prescribed drink offerings that were part of the worship of Israel to offer a drink offering. There was actually some wine kept in the temple, according to First Chronicles, that could be used for the drink offering. 
In Judges and uh, chapter 9, verse 13, there's a comment about wine cheers. In Isaiah 55, it's a symbol of salvation blessing. Without money, without price, come and buy wine. And it's talking about salvation. Wine was used in the Passover. Wine was used in the Lord's Supper and the Lord Himself introduced it. Took the wine and said, this is now going to be the symbol of My blood. And Paul instructed Timothy to stop drinking so much water and take a little wine for your stomach's sake. 1 Timothy 5.23 It was definitely a part of daily life. Now there were some people in the Old Testament, some people in, uh, in Israel, who didn't drink at all. First, according to Leviticus 10, the priests were not to drink. The priests were not to drink. Isaiah indicts the priests and the prophets because they were stupid drunks. They were supposed to be the ones who didn't drink. That was part of God's command to the sons of Levi back in Leviticus chapter 10. But by the time you get to Isaiah's time, the priests and the prophets are drunk and leading the people astray. And then there were rulers who were not to drink. Proverbs 31 says it's not for kings to drink because they're in a situation where they have to make very serious judgments. And Isaiah also condemns rulers who were drunk. And then there were the Nazarites. The, the most extreme vow you could take as a Jew was the Nazarite vow. You vowed not to cut your hair. You were sort of indifferent to fashion and all of that. You were going to be completely devoted to God. And as a part of the Nazarite vow, you didn't drink wine or strong drink. So there were some people who didn't drink. In the New Testament, pastors and elders, First Timothy and Titus, are those who are not permitted to be in a situation where they drink, where they could be drunk. We'll see more about that next time. So yes, there were non-drinkers in the Old Testament. I think if you take the strong interpretation of Titus and Timothy, it's not wise for one in ministry leadership to drink. If it's not wise for a ruler how much more for one who is in the kingdom of God, a, a sort of contemporary to a priest and a prophet. So what about the rest of us? How do we approach this whole thing of wine? Well, let me just wrap it up and take you in a kind of final direction. Paul is saying that walking the worthy walk is walking in humility and love and unity and holiness and wisdom and never seeking an altered state of consciousness by being drunk, never assuming that that enhances your religious experience. That is the devil's lie. You need to be filled with the Spirit. And even in a non-religious sense, this is the forbidding of drunkenness. But certainly in the religious sense, it is saying absolutely not because the table of demons and the cup of demons cannot be shared with the table of the Lord and the cup of the Lord. Now all that leads to 
a series of questions that I want to give you. I have eight of them, but only one for now. Here's the question. Is the alcohol beverage that you drink today the same as in ancient times? Is it the same? Is it, does it correspond? Um, we can answer that question, I think, historically. Alcohol produced today is produced to be intoxicating. It is a multinational, global, massive production. The distillation process didn't even come till a thousand years after the New Testament era. So now today you have production of this, and it is ubiquitous, and the supply is never, ever, ever ending, and they now have the capacity to take it up to 80% alcohol. Alcoholic beverages in ancient times were not like that. They didn't even know anything about such distillation processes. It was designed in ancient times to be safe, not to be harmful. It was designed by God to be safe. Wine was low in alcohol, fermented by the Jews perhaps two or three days, maybe two, three percent alcohol. The Greeks more because they weren't worried about being restrained. They were worried about the opposite. Just to give you an illustration, wine first appears in the ministry of Jesus in John chapter 2 when he went to the wedding of Cana. You remember there were six pots with about 30 gallons each. And Jesus said, fill the pots with what? Water. Now, could he have created wine? Yes, he could have created wine. But to create 180 gallons of wine would have either meant that he produced wine that already had fermented or that he produced wine that did not ferment but would eventually ferment in that volume sitting in pots. There would have been a confusion on the part of the people if Jesus had created pure wine because they always mixed it with water. It, it might have been an outrage. And the fact is, this is a large group of people this is a large home, and they ran out of wine. Well, you say, why didn't they go to the liquor store? That's the point. There was none. This was an agrarian culture. You grew the grapes. You crushed the grapes. You took the juice. This was a very, very simple local process. And they ran out. It's a far cry from what you have today. They mix it with water, and you can find anywhere from 3 to 1 to 20 to 1 mixture, which reduces the 2 to 4% even down lower. But there was something else they did. They boiled the juice that came out of the grapes. There's a lot of interesting discussion of this in ancient Greek literature. The boiling of the juice when it was first taken out of the grapes. Classical writers like Horace in 35 B.C., here you drink under a shade cups of unintoxicating wine. Plutarch, 60 A.D., that filtered wine neither inflames the brain nor infects the mind, 
and the passions and is much more pleasant to drink. Aristotle spoke of sweet wine that didn't intoxicate. It was so thick it was necessary to scrape it from the skin containers and dissolve the scrapings in water. Virgil in 30 B.C. talked about sweet wine boiled down and then used in a luscious juice. What are you talking about? What they did was boil the juice, which boiled out the alcohol. They reduced it to a paste. It would be like jam or like the consistency of honey or something like that. They put it in a skin and they would scrape it or squeeze it like you would squeeze jam out of a tube and they would mix it with water to reconstitute it as grape juice. Both that uh, boiled paste that became eventually wine and the wine that was mixed with water would have a very low alcohol content. There's all kinds of literature. There's an interesting book called Grecian Antiquities, which talks about how the people boiled their wine, how they prepared immediately expressing the juice from the grapes, bottled it, boiled it, kept it for use. This was, one writer says, the mode of general practice among the ancient people. Strong drink, unmixed and unboiled, was barbaric, unacceptable. So we're establishing that the wine in those days was different. There's fortified wine today that's 20% alcohol. That was very different. They worked very hard to prevent drunkenness. The believers did. The people of Israel did. So diluting wine is spoken about by Homer, Plato, Pliny the Elder. Jewish Midrash or Mishnah says four cups of wine were poured out for Passover mixed with water, two or three parts. They called it matzug. Commonly, wine was boiled so that all the alcohol evaporated. The residue paste was then remixed with water, alcohol-free. This was common in Rome, in Egypt, and in all Jewish life. It was called yayin mebushal. And you have references to mixed wine in the Old Testament, particularly in Proverbs 9. Maybe we'll look at that next time. We don't have time this time. So, you say, well, why did God give them something like this that could make people drunk? Well, understand that there was no refrigeration, right? So, it didn't matter what the juice was, it would eventually ferment, because this is a fallen world and fermentation is part of it. So we could say, first of all, God wanted them to mix it and to boil it for the sake of conservation because there was not an unlimited supply. Secondly, he wanted them to mix it with water to increase the flavor. So interesting, I read an article in the New York Times about how water is a flavor enhancer in wine as it is in coffee. If you've ever gone to Brazil and asked for a coffee, you get a tiny teaspoonful that knocks you back onto the ground. It is the worst tasting thing. It is, it is like a mega dose of caffeine jolting 
your veins. Coffee's much more tolerable when mostly it's water, right? Its flavor is enhanced. Same is true with wine. So they use it to enhance the flavor. They also use it to extend its usefulness. And they mixed it and they boiled it to prevent drunkenness because they had to drink a lot. You know, there was probably somebody going around in the, the New Testament era in town saying, stay hydrated, stay hydrated. Well, if you needed to be hydrated when it was 120 degrees in the, in the summer in the Middle East, you probably wouldn't want to drink the water because there was no sanitation and there was no sterilization and the water was dangerous. So this degree of fermentation was a gift from God as an antiseptic. It was as much to sanitize the water as anything. The water made it taste better, and the wine made the water safe. Sanitize the water. That's why Paul says to Timothy, stop drinking water and take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Fermentation was a gift in a fallen world. Two microbiologists at Oregon State University have discovered that wine killed, they use the technical word inactivated, killed is my word, killed bugs. What bugs? Pathogens like E. coli, Salmonella, Staphylococcus, and Klebsiella within 30 to 60 minutes. So God was giving us something like so many things that we have that if you use wrongly, could ruin your life. If you use rightly, can protect your life. Fermented made it lethal to pathogens. How good is God? How kind is He? Part of His protection. In fact, it's so effective that there's some formulas now of um, wine-based spray disinfectant that you can purchase. So God knew exactly what he was doing. It's a gift when used properly. God never intended it to be turned into a disaster for an entire nation. America's number four in alcohol consumption in the world. Finland, Denmark, Australia, and UK are the ones around us but listen to this. Drugs. America is number one in the world in drug consumption, drugs and alcohol. Disastrous to our society. 50% of Americans don't drink, but 50% do. And of the 50% who do, 25% binge drink. 100,000 people die every year in America because of alcohol-related death. 100,000 are now dying a year with drug fentanyl, millions with the other drugs. So for Christians, we have nothing to do with that. We understand the provision God has made in giving us fruit that we can turn into juice and drink. We understand its antiseptic benefits but we don't ever want to be under the control of the alcohol, right? 
that leads to dissipation. That leads to doing things, saying things, and behaving in a way that doesn't demonstrate wisdom and certainly doesn't fulfill the will of God, which wisdom always does. Now, the first question was, is the alcohol that we have today the same as the ancient times? Answer, no, clearly not. I have seven more questions for next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word, the entrance of which gives light. We thank you for its instruction to us. We thank you for its truthfulness. We thank you for the wisdom that comes from above. Thank you for this wonderful church, these precious people. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for your work in their lives. Protect every one of them, every single one, from the kind of dissipation that can come from alcohol. We thank you, Lord, that we live in a time when we don't even need it at all. We have all the science and all the mechanisms now to drink to our fill a thousand different kinds of thirst-quenching drinks without ever having to touch anything that's full of alcohol. In a world in which that wasn't possible, you gave so much guidance and the people had so much wisdom to mitigate that potential. In those days, you would have to stay beside your wine so long and drink so much because it was mixed or because there was no alcohol content left in the paste that it would be almost impossible to become drunk unless you purposely intended it. But today, Lord, we are being hammered by those who would cause us to be drunk and in the drunkenness that we would be dependent and that dependency would become alcoholism, dependency, and that would mean that we keep purchasing the product. So, Lord, I pray that you'll deliver all of us from that. And may we know what it is to walk in the joy and peace and love of the Holy Spirit who fills us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is... T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. 
Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username links. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Radiometric dating, proof of long ages? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the popular Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. How old are Earth's rocks? Well, many people answer millions of years old. That's often because of wrong thinking regarding radiometric dating. Here's how this works. One element, the parent, decays into a new element, the daughter. Scientists measure this decay rate and use that to determine the ages of the rocks. Seems simple, but radiometric dating is based on three unprovable assumptions. One, we can't know the original number of parent atoms. Two, there hasn't been any contamination. Three, the decay rate has always been constant. But we can't know any of these are true. So no, radiometric dating doesn't prove long ages. Discover more about the true age of the Earth when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to the rest of this series and other episodes when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
How many parents and daughters? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. Yesterday we learned that radiometric dating is often given as proof of long ages. And here's how it works. Scientists measure the decay of the parent element into the new daughter element. The rate of this decay and the number of daughter atoms are used to calculate a date for the rocks. Now there's big unprovable assumptions behind this. For one, Scientists must assume we can know the conditions when the rock was formed, but no one was there to observe this. It's an assumption that we can know the original number of parent atoms based on how many are left and how many daughter atoms are now present. And that's an unprovable assumption. Learn more about God's Word and the Gospel message when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
change the hardest heart. The you've got to tell it. We got the truth. We got the truth. It's time to go. Contamination? This is Ken Ham, author of the new devotional commentary for the family, Creation to Babel. All this week, we're learning that radiometric dating is built on layers of unprovable assumptions, so it's not proof of long ages. Now, here's what I mean. This process assumes there hasn't been any contamination of the rocks. So if you believe these rocks are millions of years old, you have to assume that millions of years of natural processes haven't added or removed any of the parent or daughter atoms. That's a big assumption. And it's a bad one too. You see, 50-year-old lava flows in New Zealand gave wildly wrong radiometric ages, including one date of 3.9 billion years. Clearly, these assumptions are wrong. There's so much more to learn when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged with truth from God's Word and the truth of the Gospel at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now, when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah. Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. 
in the story of the Bible, where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero when his name is Jesus. A constant decay rate? This is Ken Ham, inviting you to visit our life-size Noah's Ark attraction south of Cincinnati. Radiometric dating is believed to be proof of long ages, but the process is laid with assumptions. Here's one. Scientists must assume the rate at which atoms decay is constant. If the decay rate was different in the past, the dates can't be trusted. And there's evidence that decay rate was much faster in the past. In a study, the decay of crystals in uranium gave a radiometric age of one and a half billion years. But the decay also produces helium. Yet only 6,000 years worth of helium has leaked out. So the billion year age can't be right. The decay rate was much faster in the past, making it impossible to get absolute ages. Plan your trip to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Children 10 and under are free this year, so bring your family. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. And 
Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they're God, they are praising. Their differences cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. are never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go no, we all uh, have a different story. Wait, God made me and you. He made us all, y'all. God made me and yeah. you. For joy. For our joy. And yeah. for his glory. Uh, yeah. God made me and you. Say what? God made me and you. Yeah, yeah. Different colors and different shades. All differently and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. All of value, all are lost, all is greatly for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. God made me and you. Different colors and different shades, all fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. For all of value, all are lost, all is greatly for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross. Can we know Earth's age? This is Ken Ham, co-author of the eye-opening book on Noah's Flood, A Flood of Evidence. All this week we've seen layers of unprovable assumptions behind the claim we can know absolute ages from the rocks. Well, wrong assumptions result in wrong dates. This is especially true because of the truth of creation and the global flood. Both would impact the decay process and explain why there's so many problems with radiometric dating. Now, if the rocks don't give us the age of the Earth, can we know it? Well, yes. 
God gave us Earth's true history in His Word. He told us He created the universe in six days. Then He gave us genealogies we can use to determine the Earth's age. And when we do that, we know the Earth is only about 6,000 years old. There's so much more to discover about the age of the Earth, geology, dating methods, and much more when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Visit us at AnswersRadio.com. I want to go over 
the logic of reincarnation, or better yet, the illogic of it. I want to explain why I think reincarnation is a bad thing at the end of the day. What I want to do is play out the rationality of reincarnation and let the conclusions speak for themselves. So as we went over before, reincarnation works with karma, right? Your past lives of goodness or badness affects the quality and position of your next incarnation. And the goal is to achieve perfection so your spiritual evolution is complete and you achieve nirvana or ascend as an ascended master, as some believe. So think about this for just a second. If the law of karma says that we work off the debt from our previous life, and the life that we're living right now is a life that we, in essence, chose to help work off that said karma, then led to its logical conclusion that everybody in the world and who has ever lived is living the life that they chose and deserve, from the millionaire in the mansion to the poor, suffering, and disabled of all ages. This is the complete opposite of what Jesus taught about grace. This is basically a work-based theology taken to an extreme. And furthermore, I mentioned before about the issue of messing up someone's karma. This is actually a big problem in societies where they teach karma as it's supposed to be defined. Caste systems are a huge problem in these societies because to them, living the belief of karma out, then that means the rich and poor, healthy and suffering alike are getting what they deserve. If you help someone in need, in this view, you're actually hurting their karmic cycle if you help them. Why help people who are suffering at all? Why alleviate any pain or help the impoverished? They chose this. Now back off. They need to climb that spiritual ladder. So if you help them, you are interfering with this cosmic cycle and can actually end up hurting your own karma as well. This creates a huge problem with the problem of evil. When we went over the scripture in John 9, where Jesus heals the blind man, that's also another considerable issue that people just gloss over. They're using it as a verse to show reincarnation is true, but why ignore the natural conclusion that can't be ignored if they're going to draw that from this text? that this seemingly innocent man deserved what he got. This is not a good thing and does nothing to solve the problem of evil, but collectively puts the blame back on us. Karma says that there is no unjust suffering. So this means that whoever you are watching, the pain that you're going through right now, maybe you're chronically ill. Maybe you've experienced abuse, death, and suffering, whatever it is. If this belief is true, then in essence they're saying you deserved and asked for this. All I can say is thank God for the cross. Thank God that Jesus took our sins because we have a God that's personal and cares about you and your suffering to the point that he became his own creation and actually did something about it. He became the solution to the problem of evil. The cross is the solution to the problem of evil. Also, speaking of the cross, so here's the logical issue of Jesus dying in the first place. 
If Jesus is supposedly a reincarnated Buddha, has worked off his karma, then that means he had no previous karma to atone for, at least not enough to deserve such a torture. So by that logic, what in the world did he do to deserve brutal torture and death? He literally didn't deserve that. So the logic falls short on that account as well. Now, some people redefine karma and reincarnation, especially here in the West. There's different variations of this, and a lot of pop culture is so quick to say that karma will come back to them, yet they actually don't think of the consequences of karma itself if it's a universal law. I mean, we've definitely westernized this, guys. I mean, we have wrestlers and coffee shops named after karma. I mean, I think there's even a credit card company with the name Credit Karma or something like that. It's trendy. So some people try to separate karma from reincarnation, but if someone even has a light understanding of reincarnation, then that means karma comes along with it. I mean, how you get reincarnated depends on your perfect karma. Who can do this? I mean, at the end of the day, this is impossible. That's terrible news. One lifetime isn't even enough to pay for all our sins. You must come back indefinitely to shed your bad karma. Like, guys, really, if that's true, who needs help when you have reincarnation? The Bible says that there is no way to earn your salvation, and this is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. This is absolutely contrary to the teaching of grace. It fundamentally contradicts the central message that Jesus died for our sins once and for all. Sometimes it comes down to just simply recognizing the fact that you can't save yourself no matter what you do. That's exactly the point. This is exactly why Jesus came to do what he did, and the problem is that people don't see their need for salvation. No doubt you have heard this. Bellyache. Any God who would allow children by the millions to suffer and die in this way, and their parents to grieve in this way, either can do nothing to help them or doesn't care to. He is therefore either impotent or evil. Or perhaps you've had to suffer through this accusation. I do know that the God of the Bible, if he's a good, loving, all-knowing personal being, that God does not exist. And then there's this. That kind of a God doesn't exist. He is turning on extreme weakness. If he wants to prove that he's not in our ears, I think he's coming up in the hell. And finally, we have this. Yawner. Where in the Gospels does Jesus specifically talk about homosexuality? He doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, he can swat those four nets away with a very quick study of, wait for it, the Jesus hermeneutic. That's right. By studying how Jesus read Genesis, we'll see that Jesus was actually citing historical events that happen in real places to real people. He didn't seem to have the same problem with the scary God of Genesis as many postmodern Bible critics do. It's God. It's nothing at all like Jesus. He's wrathful, jealous, vengeful. So here are 
six reasons we should read Genesis as actual historical history. Methinks that was redundant. Number one, marriage is what brings us together today. When Jesus discussed divorce in Mark 10, Matthew 19, he refers back to the creation account in Genesis. In other words, he roots our understanding of marriage in actual people and actual events, declaring them male and female. From the beginning, Jesus isn't conveying a metaphorical understanding of Genesis to bolster his argument for marriage. That would be ludicrous. Rather, he understands the contemporary practice of marriage between a man and a woman is reliant upon the nature of the very real creation and union of an actual man and an actual woman. He isn't basing his argument on myth or poetry, but history. In other words, if the reference of an illustration isn't true, then the actual illustration explodes. For instance, if I said, that steak is as hot as a cup of two-hour-old coffee, you'd probably think I was trying to say the steak wasn't warm at all. Why? Because an illustration crumbles if the reference point isn't true, real, or accurately described. So here are some more examples of Jesus' illustrations that relied on the reality of the historicity of Genesis. Number two, Jesus continues citing Genesis as historical narrative to support his argument against the Pharisees, Luke 11, Matthew 23. He's tracing back the bloodline of unrighteous unbelievers all the way back to Cain, who spilled the blood of righteous Abel. That is not a metaphorical condemnation of the lawyers and Pharisees. He was citing the actual history of an actual person. Number three, Luke 17, Matthew 24. Jesus compares the future day of the coming of himself with the day of the flood in Noah's time. If there weren't an actual global flood, then Jesus' analogy wouldn't hold water. Yes. Yes, I did write that. Number four, Jesus compares the coming of the Son of Man to the day of destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he clearly considered his second coming to be a future historical event, and he says it will be just like the day of Noah and the day of Lot in Sodom, meaning these are real people. These are real events. Jesus didn't try to explain away the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah because that makes God too mean, just the opposite. He relies on the historicity of those events to explain and point toward a future historical event, his second coming. And if that isn't enough for you, Jesus agreed with Ken Ham, don't we all? The earth wasn't created billions and billions of years ago. What? Jesus taught that Adam and Eve were created at the beginning of creation. That doesn't leave a whole lot of 
wiggle room for the day age creationist. And finally, number six, demonstration that we should read the Bible the way Jesus did. John chapter 8, he tells hard-hearted hearers their father is the devil. Who could it be? Who could it be? I just can't imagine who. Could it be? The devil, who's a murderer from when? The beginning. If the earth is old, then the devil was murdering for billions of years, despite the fact Romans 5 makes it clear Adam is the one who introduced death into this world through his plunge into sin. That makes billions of years of evolution through the deaths of trillions of creatures absolutely impossible. We are just not better at reading the Bible than Jesus was. We cannot imagine we are somehow saving God or Jesus from scrutiny by making Genesis poetic. After all, if Genesis doesn't have to be read literally and historically, then neither do any other books in the Bible, including Gulp, the Gospels. No, I'm not Harry Jesus begs sinners to believe in him and isn't a holy God who will judge and punish sin. Sin doesn't make God angry. Sin breaks God's heart. He's a sissified, needy Jesus. He's just yearning for you. He's longing for you. He wants friendship and relationship with you. He needs you. Oh, you're breaking his heart. No, he's going to break you. The real Jesus is a sovereign king who commands repentance and faith. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's my Jesus. That's MSNBC morning host Joe Scarborough claims that Jesus was pro-abortion. As a Southern Baptist that grew up reading the Bible, maybe backslidden Baptist, but I still know the Bible. By the way, his third wife is sitting next to him, with whom he committed adultery. Jesus never once talked about abortion. Never once. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, and slanders. And it was happening back in ancient times. It was happening during his time. The law says if a child in the womb is delivered prematurely and killed, you shall pay life for life. Guess who's the author of that law? For people perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ down to one issue, it's heresy. Name one person who's saying the gospel is being anti-abortion. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. But if you want to argue that Jesus approves of the murder of unborn children, you're the heretic. If you don't believe me, if that makes you angry, why don't you do something you haven't done in a long time? Open the Bible. Open the New Testament. Read the red letters. You won't see it there, said the adulterer. The whole Bible is the word of Christ. He does not disagree with any part of it. Like Psalm 106, which says they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, and they shed innocent blood. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled. In Revelation 21.8, Jesus said in red letters, But as for the cowardly and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers, the sexually immoral persons, and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You can be sure of this. Jesus 
He was maligned and rejected by many, though he had done no wrong. And yet billions of people now follow his teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them because Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love. Young Christian Luther J.I. Packer said, The Queen is a Christian lady resolved to live out her vow till she drops. She yields unbounded admiration from us all. As myself, a Christian, a Commonwealth citizen, and an oldest old with my own lifetime commitment to God, I aim to follow her example of unflagging faithfulness. Remember Muhammad Ali dancing around the ring? firing off all his famous one-liners. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I'm a bad man. I'm the king of the world. And it's as if though I blinked and then looked back at my television screen and there was Muhammad Ali standing on a stage to receive an award. His hands shaking from the advanced stages of Parkinson's disease. His fast-firing one-liners reduced to slowly spoken two or three word sentences. Do you remember Superman? Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And it sounds as though I turned my head for a moment and looked back, and there was Superman on my television screen. Christopher Lee, a quadriplegic, he exchanged his cape for a wheelchair, his mighty wind-gushing lungs for a ventilator, his robust and bulletproof body for one that no longer even worked. My friend, the Bible says that our life is but a vapor. It's like hot breath on cold air. We see it for a moment, and then it vanishes away. My question to you is, what is time, this blip that we know in comparison to eternity, in comparison to forever? Are you ready for it? Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because someone even as legendary and as iconic and as seemingly invincible as Queen Elizabeth will indeed succumb to death. And so will you, my friend. Turn to Christ. Place your faith in his death and his resurrection. Receive that free gift of everlasting life as you repent and trust in him. Because he's the only solution to the problem of death. Because in him there is life. Tragic as it is for the queen to die. Let's not lose focus on who is really in charge. You see, Jesus' reign will not have an end. And regardless of who is next in line to succeed Queen Elizabeth, Jesus will always be king. Why? Because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He does not stand in a long line with other leaders like Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. Why? Because he is the ruler of rulers. He is the capital K of kings. If he's had no predecessor, he'll have no successor. You cannot impeach him. For there's no other name under heaven given among men, or by which man must be saved. Or I used to be a lot more religious when I was younger. I used to go to church and stuff. But the older I get, the more I strain away from it. Um, so why is that? It's because the hormones kicked in and girls were a better shape than Noah's Ark? Is that why? Well, that's probably it. That's, uh, well, that's really honest of you to say that. How do I go to heaven? What do I have to do? I think you have to believe. You have to believe that there's a, a Savior and there's a higher power. Heather believed in the Savior. Did you yeah. know that? I did not know that. Yeah, he had gone with us, written on the belts of Nazi Germans. 
And uh, he was a baby tester before he got into power. He talked about God and all sorts of stuff. But when he got into power, he had his own Bible written, had 100,000 printed, had 12 commandments instead of 10, and uh, Jesus was an Aryan and not a Jew. He was a nasty character, but he believed in Jesus. So is that all you have to do, believe? No, I think you have to live a, a life of, you know, um, somewhat kind life. You have to live a, a good life. Is there any evidence of God's existence? Well, I mean, that's the whole purpose of faith, is there's, like, the Bible, um, but there's no, it's, that's where faith comes in. Believing in God's existence has nothing to do with faith. I'll tell you why. When you look at a building, you don't believe there was a builder. You know there was a builder, because buildings don't build themselves. When you look at a painting, you don't believe there was a painter. You know there was a painter. So when you look at creation, flowers and birds and trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, fruits, male and female, all these things show us the genius of God's creative hand. But when we speak about faith, we're talking about trust in God's integrity, like you trust a parachute, or like you trust a a pilot, or like you trust your doctor when he gives you medicine. You just put your faith in. So that's what faith is when it speaks of faith in God. So how are you doing? Um, (laughs) I'm doing good, I think. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm definitely not Hitler. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not Hitler. But, you know, if I was going to jump out of a plane and you said, you got your parachute on it, I wouldn't want to hear, or you wouldn't want to hear, I'm doing good, I think. You want to know that parachutes are and it's going to open. So the Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Have you been born again? I haven't. You know what that means? I think it's to... Uh, reconfess your faith. No. No? No, it's in John chapter 3, and Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so you're not going to get to heaven unless you're born again. So we better make sure you're born again, or at least you know what it's about. Now, do you think you're a good person? Yes. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not perfect. Uh, Everybody does things that they probably shouldn't do. But I do my best to minimize that as much as possible. So have you lied and stolen? I mean, I'm sure I have. I mean, I know for a fact I've lied before, and I've probably stolen some stuff as well. Yeah. Have you used God's name in vain? Uh, yes. Love your mom? I do. Would you ever use her name as a cuss word? No. Why not? Um, no, that's a great question. It's not. It's very simple. It is a very simple question. You respect her. That's why you wouldn't right. use her name as a cuss word. Right. But you don't respect the God that gave you a mother and gave you life because you've taken his holy name and use them in place of the S word to express disgust. Right. See, that's called blasphemy, very serious in God's eyes, punishable by death. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yes, I have. It's sex outside of marriage. Yes. So here's the summation. So if you're not a good person, you're like the rest of us. You've <laughs> told me that you're lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterous heart, Who's self-righteousness, who's self-righteous, which is a sin in God's eyes. So on on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty when you stand before God. Uh, Guilty. Heaven or hell. Uh, If if what's coming to me, it should be hell. Definitely. The Bible says all liars will their part in the lake of fire. No thief, no blasphemy, no adulterer will inherit God's kingdom. So what can you do to be saved? You know, I don't know. Do you know what death is according to the Bible? Most people don't know what it is. Uh, not according to the Bible, I don't. Wages. Okay. Bible, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge gives the death sentence to a murderer. He says, you've earned the death sentence. It's your wages. It's what's due to you. It's what you've earned. And sin is so serious to a holy God, it's not to us. We make little excuses. You know, it's just a kid, just so little things. They were just fibs and white lies. 
But sin is so serious to him, he's giving you the death sentence. In fact, your death will be evidence that God is deadly serious about sin. So what can you do to be made right with God? Believe and read his word. Well, that won't help. It'll just condemn you while you're in your sin. It's like saying, Judge, uh, I've broken the law, but I'm going to read your books. <laughs> so you're going to no, be guilty. I, I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't. You actually do, but you don't understand it, and because you don't understand it, you don't value it. Have you heard of Jesus dying on the cross? Correct, yes. The Bible says he suffered for our sins. That's what happened on that cross. Yep. We broke the law, the Ten Commandments. He paid the fine. Yep. That's why he said, it is finished, just before he died. So if you're in court and someone pays you speeding fines, the judge will legally let you walk and say, someone's paid these fines, you're out of here. Even though you're guilty, you walk because someone paid your fine. And even though you and I are guilty before God, he can let us live forever. He can take the death sentence off us, all because Jesus paid that fine in his lifeblood, rose from the dead and defeated death, and all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent and trust in the Savior. You know what repentance is? Yes. It's, it comes from contrition. Do you know what contrition is? I don't. It means to be sorry for your sin. And the Bible says godly sorrow works repentance unto life. So you must repent with a genuine sorrow and then trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. What has God done for you? He's given me life. He's given you eyesight to see with, ears to hear good music, taste buds to enjoy good food. He's given you a brain to think with. The ability to appreciate a blue sky and the sound of birds. He's given you love and laughter, friends and family, the liberty of this country. And so you, you owe him everything. And the Bible says the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you haven't done that, you're saying, God, I don't care about what you think, and yet he gave you life. Jesus said he that saves his life will lose it. Don't try and hold on to the life that God gave you, because Jesus said you're going to lose it. Yield it, to, yield it back to God. And he will change you. He did it with me and he's done it with millions of others. And realize that it's your love of sin that keeps you from coming to Christ. It's that pornography and that fornication. You're delirious with joy. That yeah. God gave sex within the bounds of marriage. You've, you've been given the apparatus for sex. Same with a woman. God's given you the ability to have pleasure in a woman's shape. But within the confines of marriage, if your dad gives you a Lamborghini and says, Son, keep, keep on the right side of the road and don't drink and drive. If you drink and drive, he's going to take the keys back off you. He's just giving you a couple of conditions, and God's given you conditions. Sex within the bounds of marriage, so you can procreate, so you can have pleasure and procreation, make kids after your own kind. And God says, just obey the rules within the confines of marriage, and if you don't, he's going to take the keys off you. He's going to take every pleasure you love away from you because you're ungrateful and unthankful. I'll leave you the words of Jesus. Do you respect Jesus? Yeah. He said, what shall a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. So um, my, my, uh, my confidence is that you're going to think about this because you love life. You're going to realize how much you value your life and, and what happens if you lose it tonight in your sleep. Okay? If you're going to jump out of a plane, why would you put on a parachute 10,000 feet? So you land safely. And your motivation is fear. Is that right? To jump? No, fear to put the parachute on. You don't want to die. Correct, correct. And that fear is your friend, not your enemy, because right. it's causing you to put on a parachute. And David, because I love you, I try to put the fear of God in you, hoping you'll see that fear is your friend, not your enemy, because it'll drive you to the cross where you'll say, God, I've been a, I've been a wretch. I've lived my life in rebellion to, to you. I've been self-righteous. I've lusted. I've done all sorts of things. I know I'm morally wrong. 
morally wrong, please forgive me. And then when you put your trust in Christ, God will, will give you righteousness. He'll wash you clean in an instant because of his amazing grace. Not because you're good, but because he's good and right. kind and rich in mercy. Is this making sense? Yes, yes. Are you sorry for your sins? Oh, absolutely I am. So when are you going to repent and trust the Savior? Starting today. You mean that? I do. Can I, I do. Pray? can I pray with you? You can. So I, I pray for David, isn't it? David. But I pray for David, thank you for his honest heart today and for his openness to the gospel. I pray he remembers his secret sins and things he's done in the past and find a place of true contrition and godly sorrow. And this day be born again all because of your kindness and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Do you have a Bible at home? I do. Have you heard of King Solomon? I have. This was taken from the book I wrote uh, called Ruby for Life. And Solomon was the wisest man who lived outside of Christ. So that's my gift to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. Yes, you too. Very nice to meet you. And thank you for the eye-opening experience. That's all we got from Tributorio Does. If you want to check that out, that was from Living Water. Um, Check that out on their YouTube channel. Living Mars, L-I-V-I-N-G-W-A-T-E-R-S. And thanks for listening to Most Central Tributal Radio. Going to go out with Yanti and Friends and the V-I-V-O-E. And bye for now. <laughs>